Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we took a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Seidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, February 7th, 2021. 2021, we are here. Sunday. Yes, that's right. And uh, congratulations to the winners. Do you know who they are? They're not the Chiefs. Yeah, the Tampa Tampa. Bucks. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, we both went to high school. I went to high school in Florida. You lived in Florida longer. And also went to high school in Florida. I know, but I'm saying you have more of longevity to Florida than I do. Oh, sure. But we haven't lived in Florida in a long time, either one of us. Tampa was a long drive away. Tampa was not close to us. The Gulf's pretty, though. The Gulf is pretty. Football's not really our thing. That's our (laughs) (laughs) This is what we think of Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) But anyway, for people who like the football, I hear the weekend had a really great show today. So Super Bowl football things today. Hope you enjoyed it and stayed safe. Yeah. I hope you didn't eat wings next to a stranger. Don't do that. That's dumb. But for today's show. Ooh, something special. We're bringing highlights back. Oh, right. Okay. I wasn't sure where you were going with that. We're doing a quick highlight throwback. Yes. And then we'll go into our normal segments where it's quality questionable moments that we saw in the shows, and then a moment in journalism and a moment in politics that seem noteworthy in our respective shows. And some of the major topics this week we'll be discussing include the impending impeachment trial, second impeachment trial of President Trump in the the Senate beginning this week. First for a president to experience this twice yep and then we'll also be talking about the covid relief bill that is in stages of movement within congress still (laughs) right yeah and uh, other various Uh, topics a little bit here and there yeah naomi what is your before we do that what did you watch today oh i guess i should say so well i had the three shows this week correct so i had state of the union who was the host Jake Tapper. Uh huh. I had Meet the Press and I had Fox News Sunday. Naomi, what did you have? I watched This Week when George Stephanopoulos was the host and Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan takes no vacation, so it was Margaret Brennan. Yep, that makes sense. Nor does Scott Gottlieb, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> So, Naomi, now, what was your highlight this week? What was something that just stood out? It was just Oh, a my highlight. goodness. I had, I would fail the Polylog listeners and fans if I did not note this moment that I observed on this week, in which George introduces the roundtable panelists in a completely new way. Take a listen and see what you See if you see the difference, Brendan. One of the things we're going to talk about on our roundtable was Sarah Isger, a veteran of the Trump administration, now a political analyst for CNN and The Dispatch, Christina Greer, professor of political science at Fordham University, and our team, Rahm Emanuel and Chris Christie. And Sarah, let me begin with you. Whoa. He was like, uh, and our team, but we're going to begin with these other people. Yeah. Not only were Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel not introduced first, but they didn't get the first question. Wow. 
huge. My jaw from on the floor. From George. That's a big deal. From yeah, George. Exactly. Yeah. And at one point, one of them was talking for a long time, and Chris Christie actually coughed to get George's attention. It was incredible. Whoa. Yeah. So miracles happen, apparently not on Easter, not on Christmas, well, not on any I, religious holiday. On Super Bowl Sunday is the day that Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel are not introduced first. I don't know that I would call that a miracle. I would say that is progress. A miracle would be them not on the show. That's true. That would be a miracle. Listen, the pandemic has really decimated my expectations, so (laughs) take what I could get. But fair point. You had a highlight as well, Brendan. Yeah, this was a moment that just, I was like, oh my god. Listen to this. This is Representative Adam Schiff. He previously served as one of the House impeachment, I think he was the head of the House impeachment managers during the last Senate impeachment trial. He is not anything of the sort this time, but he was on the Sunday shows on Meet the Press this week talking about Trump's impending second impeachment, probably because all the actual impeachment managers are working all weekend. And just listen to just listen to this. Uh, Before I let you go, I would like you to respond uh, to Kevin McCarthy on the Marjorie Taylor Greene vote. Here's what he said on the floor of the House this week. Take a listen. If people are held to what they are said prior to even being in this House, if majority party gets to decide who sits on what other committees, I hope you keep that standard because we have a long list you can work within your own. You worried about the precedent that has been set here? I had a, a, a former aide to a re- Republican speaker say to me, Democrats are going to, if they start this precedent, my side will show no mercy the next time they have power. No, look, Kevin McCarthy stands for nothing except the perpetuation of his own position. Uh, He has no values uh, and, in my view, cares about little except for uh, hoping to be speaker one day, uh, God forbid. Um, But look, if, if members of either party uh, are threatening violence against other members of the of the party uh, of the body and suggesting yeah. they be executed uh, if they are casting doubt on 9/11 or school shootings if they're heckling victims of crime uh like like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene did with the the victim of the Parkland shooting yep. uh, if they're suggesting that a religious group is shooting laser beams to start forest fires they should be expelled from their committees whatever party they are in uh they shouldn't frankly even be in the congress Adam Schiff, tell me how you, you know, what do you think Adam Schiff is like in therapy? (laughs) Like if this is him openly describing how he feels about Kevin McCarthy, like imagine what he's holding back. I mean, we've talked about it before. Adam Schiff can put some sentences together, right? When he begins with, look, Kevin McCarthy stands for nothing. You think, okay, that's it. That's the end of the sentence. That's the blow, yeah. But then he continues, nothing except the perpetuation of his own position. He has no values. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh. He speaks as if he's like Aaron Sorkin's in his brain or something. (laughs) It's crazy. And apparently it struck Chuck Todd. It struck a nerve with Chuck Todd because later during the panel, Chuck Todd just says, Hey, what do you all say about what you just heard Adam Schiff say about McCarthy? You know, we asked them about it. We actually hear from Anna Palmer, who used to write the Politico playbook every morning and now has started Punchbowl News. She basically says, look, Capitol Hill is different now since January 6th. Like, 
What happened on that date has fundamentally changed the way Democrats and Republicans get together and get along. And that the conduct of McCarthy has been seen by Democrats. The fact that he went and, you know, kissed the ring, as one of our listeners uh, put it, of Donald Trump down in Florida. The fact that he voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene to stay on these committees, like all of that has really struck a nerve. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's what we hear here. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, okay, before we move on, and we do need to move on, but <laughs> you mentioned Kevin McCarthy kissing the ring. We just, we'll put it in the show notes, but we have to talk about that incredible moment. I think it was on MSNBC. Uh, a friend texted us this tweet where someone was going they're like we think we have a clip of when McCarthy saw oh gosh Donald Trump yes. today and and Brian Williams is like you know go to the tape like let's see what it was like and some <laughs> genius producer like assistant producer instead of putting the clip put the scene from Jerry Maguire <laughs> When Jerry confesses his love or he like tries to win back Renee Zellweger. And Renee Zellweger's like, You had me at hello. <laughs> it was so good. I mean, if anyone knows his Venmo, seriously, please send it to me. Well, I, I I hope it was an intern because Brian Williams did not seem the least bit pleased by it. <laughs> there was like one of the panelists who was like giggling or something, I think, that he was talking to. Anyway, it was genius television. Just incredible. Yeah. So we'll put the link in the show. Notes. It's so good. All right, Naomi, let's get on to quality questionable because even though that replaced highlight low light, it has highlight low light has not replaced it. That's true. What was a let's say, you know we've talked about some questionable things right now. What was a quality moment? Well, okay, so I cheated a little bit today. I only have two quality moments. Oh, good. I know it's like a new day. Twenty twenty one. I know. So continuing on with observations and comments about the impeachment. My quality moment is the conversation that happened on this week with Dan Abrams and Kate Shaw. They're both legal analysts for ABC News. I thought the whole conversation was fantastic, specifically around the various potential arguments and defenses of President Trump and Republicans more broadly. But there was one point in particular by Kate Shaw that I hadn't really heard. And and maybe it's going around Twitter or or I missed it. But I hadn't heard this and I thought it was actually really interesting and it kind of stuck in my brain. Take a listen to this moment when Kate Shaw and George Stephanopoulos are talking about the whole question of timing, whether this impeachment hearing is timed appropriately. Kate Shaw on trying a former president seemed to be safe harbors uh, for the Republican senators. Chief Justice Roberts isn't presiding. That's one reason they say it's unconstitutional. The other, of course, is that President Trump is no longer in office. That's right. So this timing argument has been made from the beginning of of this particular impeachment of President Trump. Remember, actually, George, you know, a year ago when President Trump faced his first impeachment trial, the timing argument was offered in his defense then, too, right, that the election was only nine months away and that the voters should be able to decide rather than the Senate convicting. So it does feel like the argument that it is never the right time to actually potentially hold accountable President Trump uh, has has been made uh, time and time again. But with respect to the Constitution, 
I think it's pretty clear that the weight of evidence does permit impeachment and trial of a former official. You know, impeachment is the most serious constitutional remedy for a grave presidential misconduct. And it just can't be that presidential misconduct that happens at the end of a term is not subject to that constitutional sanction. It's also the case that we have impeached former officials previously, although not former presidents. And if you look at constitutional history, the drafters were aware of impeachment of former officials. There was one ongoing in England at the time the Constitution was drafted, and they talked about it at the Constitutional Convention. So I think the evidence is actually quite clear that it is permissible under the Constitution to hold a trial like the one we're going to see this week. Holy cow. That's exactly what we've been wanting to hear for weeks. When people ask about this question, it's like, instead of asking the politicians, why don't we ask some experts? Absolutely. And earlier, Dan Abrams kind of goes into various the various reasons why Donald Trump's First Amendment argument is pretty much, I think he says frivolous, is, is how he describes it. And he goes point by point. But this, wow. so that was interesting. But I hadn't heard this connecting of the two dots that Kate Shaw describes here in terms of the timing wasn't right because we were less than a year away from an election. Now the timing isn't right because it was, what, two or three weeks before the end of his term. Like the Republicans are, so there's like only certain windows in which you can impeach a president regardless of the behavior. Like you're starting to lose water with that argument by using it so frequently. Like impeachments don't happen that often. It just so happened you had a president who was crazy and did stuff crazy all the time and you can't keep using this question of timing well i disagree we got to talk about process naomi i mean process is so important and you know for example another good example of timing it being very important is that you can't appoint a supreme court justice in an election year it can't happen unless you have the votes to make it happen <laughs> and then you just jam it through then you just do whatever you want yes but so, that's that's timing right timing timing let the you know let people decide Brendan, do you have a quality moment? Ah, yes. Let's talk about this quality moment. This was actually very powerful. It was literally, this is the last few seconds of State of the Union. Jake Tapper had his aside. I I don't know that I would necessarily call it his outrage corner. It was just kind of like a, a... an editorial moment where he steps forward and brings some issues forward. And he actually talked about AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the powerful, powerful statement she made on social media this week talking about her personal testimony of what happened and what it felt like to be in the Capitol during the siege. And Jake Tapper doesn't just talk about what she brought to light but the people out there who are already trying to twist it up and to perpetuate falsehoods about that personal story. But the point I want to make is that the very same bad actors in the GOP on social media, Fox and elsewhere, those same people took her story and twisted it. They falsely suggested that she had hid the fact that she was in her office building, not in the Capitol dome itself, even though she'd made that clear in the story. Or that the person pounding on the door was a cop, not a rioter, even though all that information came from her in that Instagram Live. Now, they seem to be doing this in the name of smearing her and diminishing the ugliness of the attack. And frankly, to distract from the blood on their hands. One month to the day before the attack, 
we here at State of the Union were warning about what we were afraid might happen. It turns out when a major political party coddles and enables and supports public figures who lie rapaciously and incessantly and also tolerate threats against those who challenge those lies, that storm of lies and indecency is strengthened and unleashed and it cannot be controlled. That was one month before the attack. Today, one month and one day after the attack, after that storm hit the Capitol, we are again warning. If there is no accountability and no attempt by the Republican Party to stop these insane lies that have taken root in their party, witness the support this week by the House Republicans for bigot and conspiracy theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia. If there's no effort at accountability, this is not going to be the end of MAGA terrorism. This will only be the beginning. Wow, that's very powerful. I saw that Instagram live by AOC and Jake is completely right. Everything that is being twisted, she clarifies in her almost 90 minute soliloquy, essentially. And the one thing that Jake doesn't mention is just how powerful it is for a politician to circumvent the media to tell their full story in its totality to the people who are willing to listen to her. And I think AOC is doing something very interesting with how she reaches out to to the public, but it's for political clout and very powerful testimony as well. So kudos. And the part where Jake Tapper mentions that if there is no accountability, this violence will continue. That is something we've mentioned here on Polylog. And I mean, plenty of other people have as well. But I, I don't see how Republicans argue their way out of that. Like, how do state capitals, how do county commissioners, like, how do people who don't have the means handle this type of rhetoric and violence that are in their community if it's not handled at the federal level with all the resources that they have? That's the part where I just, I become at a loss for words. Yeah, absolutely. I I did want to point out this was just the last of his aside. I mean, he, he spoke for quite a bit longer before this. This was just the end of it. Oh, right. Okay. And, and he had some clips actually from oh, good. from it. But I also want to, there, there's two things. First of all, the accountability call feels very much like a, there's an opportunity Republicans to hold President Trump accountable this week. Hint, hint, the impeachment trial, right? That's, it feels pretty obvious there. The other side of it is, you know, these warnings about rhetoric that rhetoric can lead to violence should be pretty obvious, right? We shouldn't just assume that that these are free speech arguments, as you mentioned earlier, Naomi. The other point, though, is his clarity on talking about who this Marjorie Taylor Greene, this representative from the state of Georgia, who said all these terrible things and that Republicans stood up for this week and Democrats stripped of her committee assignments in the House of Representatives. Jake Tapper doesn't mince words about who she is and what she stands for. In great contrast to the beginning of Fox News Sunday, where Chris Wallace characterizes Marjorie Taylor Greene as someone who was being targeted for her, quote, pro-Trump views. That's what he said. Chris Wallace said she was being targeted for her pro-Trump views. Get the hell out of here. Are you kidding me? That is not why she was targeted. The majority of the Republican House conference 
is pro-Trump. The majority of the Republican Party is pro-Trump. They're not being targeted for their pro-Trump views. That is not what she was targeted for, right? We know what she was targeted for. For support of assassinating members of the other side of the party. For saying that 9-11 was a conspiracy. For saying that, well, we heard it all, right? I mean, Jake Tapper just reiterated it. So, oh my gosh. It's just night and day sometimes between these hosts. And it's it's sad, you know? 100% true. But quality moment for Jake Tapper there. For sure. Naomi, what's your second quality moment? So my second quality moment is something that I heard on Face the Nation. And it, you know, Margaret Brennan, we sound kind of like broken records and a little kind of fan base <laughs> language here. But she's so good at seeing the conversation that's going to happen three months from now, mm. four months from so now. So what's she talking about today? So she talked to... Someone from the World Health Organization. She talked to Maria Van Kerkhove, something like that. And Dr. Van Kerkhove, she, like I said, she's with the World Health Organization and she's the COVID 19 technical lead. And it was kind of a conversation about COVID, but specifically on a global level. What is the World Health Organization doing? What, how do they prioritize vaccines? What are things to be looking out? And Margaret Brennan had a really fascinating question about vaccinations across the globe. Which part of the world is going to be most complicated to vaccinate? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, We need to vaccinate uh, people at risk all over the world. So I think there are different complicating factors in, in different parts of the world for different reasons. But what we want to make sure that we do is number one, that we have multiple safe and effective vaccines that are in production that continue to be tested, continue to be studied, to continue to come online. Are you that concerned by this production AstraZeneca all report? over the world? Are you, con- are you concerned by this reporting that AstraZeneca's vaccine may not be effective against the South African variant, B1351. Yes, so the B1351 um, variant identified, first identified in South Africa, there's a number of studies that are underway to look at um, the response of the body, the immune response of the body, but also the impact of vaccination. Um, there are some preliminary studies suggesting reduced efficacy, but again, those studies aren't fully published yet, and our group, um, our, our independent panel group um, on vaccinations is meeting tomorrow to specifically discuss the AstraZeneca vaccine, as well as the results coming out of South Africa, to determine what does this mean in terms of the vaccines going forward. But this is why it's really, really critical that we have more than one safe and effective vaccine. We cannot rely on only one product, and that is not the goal of of anyone around the world. So that is definitely something we need to continue to push forward. But again, vaccines are not just enough. It's vaccination that's really critical. We need to make sure everyone who is at risk, um, you know, the elderly, people who are most at risk for severe disease, receive the vaccine Mm -hmm. in all countries around the world, as well as health workers all around the world as opposed to everybody in just a handful of countries. I think this is so important for several reasons. One is the equity piece, making sure that the ones who are most vulnerable, both here in the U.S. and worldwide, are having access to those vaccines, regardless of that country's ability to kind of pay for potentially um, tons of doses. The second part that I think is really important is Dr. Van Kerkhove talks about how 
the virus will mutate and it will change. And the longer it is out there, the longer it has to mutate. So if we're only vaccinating in the most developed, you know, strongest economies, this virus will continue to change, continue to become more aggressive, continue to become more resilient, and then come back and more resistant and more resistant and spread again all across right. the globe so it's not enough to just like inoculate one country because the virus will still be somewhere else and change and manipulate and then come back. And then come back and all of our vaccines won't work. Exactly. And we'll have to do the vaccinations all over again. We'll have to do this whole mess of a 2020, 2021 all over again. No, thank you. Yeah. So, 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 so important to keep in mind, you know, if you are in like some cushy American setup where you're like, okay, I just have to wait until May, but you don't care or are concerned about COVID in other countries, like, it's going to come back to us if we're not careful. Well, it's kind of a flashback to last year when Margaret Brennan and the team at Face the Nation were paying a lot of attention a to what lot was of going attention. on in Wuhan, China. And even us here were like, why are you spending so much time on this? Yeah, we thought she was trying to scare everybody. Yep. and She no, was. And she, she was, was right. right. Yes, she was right. Exactly. So don't be us last year. <laughs> Never again. Brendan, do you have a questionable moment to close out this? Yeah, well, I'm glad you pointed out something in the pandemic because mine is pandemic related as well. This is Anthony Fauci on Meet the Press. And this is something we've brought to people's attention in the past. But it just every time it happens, we need to point out when people in public health are not giving us straight answers. And Anthony Fauci was not giving a straight answer today on a lot of things. Here he is again on Meet the Press. Let me start with vaccines. What is the, the biggest roadblock in the manufacturing process here of these vaccines, in getting vaccines quicker. The distribution problems we are having, I have a feeling, would seem small if we had more supply. What what holds us up in having more supply? Well, it's just that. The demand clearly outstrips the supply right now. If you look at the escalation of availability of doses purely on the ability and the capability of manufacturing that, it's going to escalate and will continue to escalate as we go from February to March to April and beyond. So even though there's a clear, clear discrepancy between the the demand and the supply, that Mm -hmm. will get better as we get through February and into March. But that is the limiting factor, Chuck. It's the supply-demand issue. What kind of crap answer is that? That's like someone asking, oh, well, why doesn't your car go fast? Well, it's because you want it to go fast. That's why. You want speed out of your car. And that's the discrepancy, because you want speed and the car doesn't have it. No, that's garbage. What is it? That's exactly what Chuck Todd asked. What is it exactly? What is the holdup in the supply? Why can't we create more supply? Why can't we manufacture it? Is it a lack of materials? Is it a lack of facilities? Is it a lack of people doing the work? Is it a lack of, like, what is it? Tell us what it is. And maybe Fauci doesn't have the answer, but if he doesn't, he should just say, you should ask someone else about that because my focus is another area. But he just, like, he provides nothing. Nothing. Yeah, and there's a couple things that stand out to me. One, by putting all of your answer on the demand, you're acting like the supply, the production is perfect. Right. 
right? You have zero criticisms about it. You have zero, you know, thoughts about how it could be better because it's perfect. But that's not the case. And like anyone who's looking at this knows that's not the case. And so and maybe it's it's as good as it could be. But you're telling me you have zero constructive feedback for how to increase supply in this country. Are you kidding me? It's garbage. And then if you know anyone who I mean, our, we, we have kind of like a handful of states that we know we have family, we have friends, we have old coworkers. I don't know anybody who's doing it well. <laughs> Very like I think I've heard like Vermont has it together. Oh, in West, terms of, of distribution. Yeah. West Virginia has it together. But most states are not like thriving in the vaccine rollout. There's a mess everywhere. So the idea that it's purely a supply demand as opposed to states being able to book appointments more than a week ahead like that's a freaking problem yeah i do want to point out there was actually a really good conversation about just this lack of specifics on how these damn things are being manufactured and what the holdup is on vox's the weeds podcast this last week where matthew iglesias and a number of other their other reporters were just sitting around saying like what is the reason like what is the insight on how this stuff is being made and what the holdup is? There's just this big question mark out there. And all and they point out how reporters with print publications or broadcast news, like they'll write around the, the, the question mark, right? Because they don't have the answer and no one's giving them the answer. So they won't even pose the question in their stories sometimes because, you know, they, they don't have the answer. But that's ridiculous. Like we need to know what the holdup is. This is just as we need to know why the hell they need three or four weeks to approve a vaccine, right? Like, what is going on? Give us some insight into that process. I would like to know. You know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they're scheduling their meeting at the end of the month. Okay, I would say those are kind of separate criticisms that I know you feel very passionately on both. It's about transparency. I understand. But the one is understanding, like, how is scientific approval done, right? Right. And another one is, like, more of a production and logistics question, which I think... I feel like there's a broader pool of writers that could write about that. Yeah, I I think the point I'm making is when people are dying every single day, we need to ask why things aren't going faster. When this is this is so I understand. I, I just think they're separate criticisms. And the question around like this is such like a small, stupid example, but I have a Peloton bike, right? We got it last year when all the gyms closed and all this stuff. And it took what, six, seven weeks for it to arrive, Brendan? Yeah, it took right? Forever. The wait for a Peloton bike is still abysmal. I think it's like eight weeks now. It takes forever to to get a bike. And everyone wants one because everyone misses you know, going to their favorite spin class, whatever, whatever, whatever. I got an email from Peloton this week, one, apologizing about how it's still so slow, two, acknowledging the multiple ways they're trying to rectify it. They're, I don't know, they're putting like $100 million into speeding up production. Like it was acknowledging a problem, explaining the like four different reasons why it's hard, explaining what the proposed solutions were and saying like, we're hoping to get better. And it was just so like, it's just for a stupid bike, right? Yeah. Like, why isn't that happening for 
a hugely important vaccine during a deadly pandemic. I don't yeah. understand. Exactly. Okay, Naomi. So tell me about what stood out to you in politics this week. All right. So I, the minute I heard this conversation, I knew it was going to be one of my main things I talk about. I wanted to talk about a conversation that happened on this week with Senator Roger Wicker. He's a Republican senator. George had an extensive conversation with him, essentially trying to understand if Republicans plan on holding Trump accountable for his actions in the impeachment or in any shape, way, or form, if they thought there was a role or a need for that. So I have a few clips just kind of demonstrating this extended exchange. And this is the power of a follow-up, is how I will preface this. Take a listen to these three clips. On impeachment, on impeachment, you just called it meaningless, and I know you believe it's wrong to try a former president. But President Trump was in office when he advanced these false claims to try and overturn the election. He was in office on January 6th when, as the House manager's brief argues, he, quote, summoned a mob to Washington, exhorted them into a frenzy, and aimed them like a loaded cannon down Pennsylvania Avenue. Should the president be held accountable for those actions? Well, the, the, the question is, is twofold. Number one, uh, is, is it constitutional? Does the Constitution anticipate a Senate trial of a president who has left office? And, and I think the, the overwhelming weight of, of uh, history and also of precedent indicates that it, this is not proper. Richard Nixon was about to be impeached by the House of Representatives during his second term. He resigned from office and impeachment evaporated. I think that's what most people have viewed about impeachment uh, over the course uh, of, uh, of the decades and, and the centuries. I was asking you about the president's actions, President Trump's actions. Do you think he should be held accountable for his actions on January 6th and his false claims leading up to January 6th? Well, uh, the, the question is, should he be convicted in an impeachment trial? And, and the answer is no, uh, based on the fact that the Constitution does not uh, anticipate the impeachment trial of a former president. You know, the Constitution says the chief justice presides over the Senate trial uh, of a president. The, the fact that the Chief Justice will not preside next week over this Senate trial speaks volumes about... I, I, under, I understand that argument, sir. We've, we, I understand that argument. But I'm asking you about the president's actions, what you think about the president's actions. Do you condone the president's actions? His legal brief says that at all times Donald J. Trump fully and faithfully executed his duties as President of the United States. Do you agree with that? The, the, uh, the charge, George... In the impeachment, in the one article impeachment, is that, that he singularly incited a riot to, uh, to invade the Capitol. And, and I do not think that will be proved in the trial, no. Do you think the president should be held accountable for his actions on January 6th? Uh, if, if being held accountable means um, being impeached by the House and being convicted by the Senate, the answer to that is no. Uh, now, if there, are, if there are other ways in the court of public opinion or if, if, some, uh, if some criminal charge um, uh, is, uh, dawns on some prosecutor, 
uh, perhaps that's, there's another avenue there. But Are you my role censure? is to see if the, if the Constitution provides for the impeachment and trial of a former president. And my, my be- answer to that is no. So there you hear a Republican senator multiple, 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 multiple times. Oh, my gosh. It's like a broken record. Yeah pretty much not acknowledge what type of accountability Republicans are proposing for President Trump, other than what? Public opinion, which is very similar to what we heard last week, which history. is history will say what they think about President Trump. I think it was two weeks ago, but yeah. Yeah, that's a trash response. So kind of way to stick with it, George's kind of demand for what do you think is accountability and senator wicker over and over again says accountability is not impeachment i can't believe how patient george is here you know as wicker keeps straying off the course of the actual question and continues to repeat himself yeah i think that's a fair criticism i think what george is effective in doing in the two clips we just shown here is using the language from the impeachment managers and from donald trump's legal briefing as well saying like this is not rhetoric this is like actual legal arguments do you agree or not Right. And I think the fact that Senator Wicker couldn't even say he agrees with the legal defense of President Trump is very telling. There was another good use of clips in this interview in the next follow up that I wanted to share, which we get a little blast of the past from Senator Wicker himself. Finally, sir, you, you, you voted to impeach President Clinton when you were a House member. And when you did so, you cited John Adams and his his hope that none but honest and wise men inhabit the White House. And then you went on to say this. Mr. Speaker, it is with great regret that I conclude the current occupant of the White House has utterly failed to live up to this standard. I cast my vote for impeachment to protect the long-term national interest of the United States, to affirm the importance of truth and honesty, and to uphold the rule of law in our nation. As you know, the president was impeached for lying about an affair. Why is lying about an affair more impeachable than inciting an insurrection? Well, I'm not conceding that that President Trump incited uh, a surrection. Let me say this. Republicans learned a lot from uh, the impeachment of uh, President Clinton. President Clinton had been adjudged to have committed perjury by a judge in the state of Arkansas. Perjury is a felony under the law of every state. And that was the controlling um, uh, principle that brought me to a yes vote on uh, on voting to impeach President Clinton. The fact that that a, a member of the judi- judiciary had had determined that he lied under oath, thus committing perjury. He, he wasn't convicted of any crime. It is just incredible to me how you hear these clips and you're like, how are you going to reconcile these two versions of yourself, right? Senator Wicker, and there's always, there's always some technicality, always something in the in the small print, the teeniest tiniest print. Yeah, but good use of clip by George's team there, very well done. And goodness, I wonder how Senator Wicker felt listening to that. Brendan, what's your moment in politics that you wanted to share? So I wanted to share some of how Fox News Sunday handled the impeachment discussion. I actually found a lot of points of note on the show. 
And one of those was hearing from Liz Cheney herself. Liz Cheney is the number three Republican representative from the state of Wyoming. And she was recently, you know, survived her colleagues voting to potentially remove her from her leadership position for voting in favor of Donald Trump's impeachment in the House of Representatives, one of only 10 Republicans who did so. Liz Cheney was on Fox News Sunday talking about President Trump, his impending impeachment, and his future role in the Republican Party. And she had some compelling things to say about the impeachment itself. She reiterated that she felt that President Trump claimed the election was stolen and then did everything he could to steal it himself. That's basically her exact words. And she also says that President Trump, in addition to facing the possibility of the impeachment conviction, also faces potential criminal charges for sending the tweet that targeted, it seemed, Mike Pence while the insurrection was taking place. But it's what she says about Trump's role in the Republican Party that really, really stood out to me. And I want to remind you that just the week before last, your House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, met with Mr. Trump at Mar-a-Lago and said the former president will campaign for Republicans in the 2022 elections. So the question is, is this still the party of Donald Trump? And does Marjorie Taylor Greene still hold a solid place in that party? Chris, we're the party of Abraham Lincoln. We're the party of Ronald Reagan. Uh, we have to really take a hard look at who we are and what we stand for, what we believe in. Uh, I think it, when you look at both uh, his actions leading up to what happened on January 6th, uh, the fact that he uh, was impeached in a bipartisan fashion, uh, the fact that, that uh, he lost the presidency, the fact that we lost the Senate. Uh, we have to be in a position where we can say we stand for principles, we stand for ideals. Uh, somebody who uh, has provoked an attack on the United States Capitol to prevent the counting of electoral votes, uh, which resulted in five people dying, who refused to stand up immediately when he was asked and stop the violence. Uh, that, that is a person who does not have a role as a leader of our party going forward. We have to make sure that we uh, are able to convey to the American voters we are the party of responsibility, we are the party of truth, uh, that we actually can be trusted to handle the challenges this nation faces like COVID. Uh, and, and that's going to require us to focus on substance and policy and issues going forward. But, but we should not be in embracing the former president. Extremely strong case against the McCarthy's of the world. Yeah, and she's not a loud voice in that there aren't a lot of people echoing her sentiments, but she's making it very clear as to the real risk the Republicans, the Republican Party faces if they stand by Trump, even when he's no longer president. Yeah, it's a very impressive case she makes. You know, she hearkens back to the history of the party. She talks about the fact that Trump himself led the party to failure in the presidency, failure in the Senate, and then ultimately provoked this attack. It's it's extremely powerful. And it's, you know, at the end there, she says, you know, we need to prove that we can be trusted as a party to handle the nation's challenges like COVID-19. That is, that is a very powerful, powerful statement about the future of the party. And it kind of feels like somebody who is sober when everyone else is drunk, you know, like, <laughs> hello, people, like, wake up. <laughs> That's an interesting comment from you, Brendan. <laughs> Brendan is always the sober friend. <laughs> 
So maybe I recognize yeah. what it, what you it feel, feels you, like. You, you're feeling that moment. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to point out this other moment from Fox News Sunday. There were just these very interesting moments related to impeachment. And this is very similar to what we heard from the experts on this week about the constitutionality of impeachment. And I do want to, one thing I didn't point out when you were mentioning it, Naomi, in your opening, is that this week frequently, and maybe it's related to Dan Abrams, invites yeah. very intelligent conversation when it comes to legal matters, and unlike any other show. But anyway, Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace brought the data to his question. And I really appreciated it because so many of these hosts we've seen over the last week are like, hmm, do you think it's constitutional? Tell me, politician who has a vested political interest, <laughs> do you believe that it is uh, constitutional? And Chris Wallace has some facts up his sleeve. And this is in conversation with Senator Rand Paul. I think there's all kinds of punishment. But we have to look, we've had a country for 250 years and every other Congress thought it was unwise to keep, you know, going after an ex-president. Constitutional scholars but, like but, Professor Trusovich have said that the Constitution says you impeach and disqualify. If the person isn't there to impeach, you can't do either one of them. And so there are constitutional experts but, but that say Senator that Paul. That's, also, before that's, my colleagues, Senator Paul, say, that's not quite true. If if I may, if I may, in 1876. The then Secretary of War, William Belknap, serving under Ulysses S. Grant, was about to be impeached for accepting bribes. He raced to the White House and resigned, but the House impeached him anyway, and the Senate decided that it had the authority to try him. And it did try him, and although a majority sought to remove him to convict him, they didn't get the two-thirds. But isn't that the 1876 case of William Belknap a, a solid precedent? No, because we've never impeached a president because we always thought it would destroy and tear up the country and divide us further. No, no, it's not a president because it's not about the president. <laughs> <laughs> but I did appreciate, of course, Chris Wallace bringing the history to bear. Of course. So, yeah, those were two really interesting, interesting moments uh, that I thought occurred on Fox News Sunday as it relates to impeachment. But, Naomi, take us now to journalism. Yeah, so I wanted to, again, Margaret Brennan with the perspective really stood out to me, and I wanted to note it as my moment in journalism. In today's episode, she talked to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, First Lady Treasure, Treasury Secretary, big fan of this, but... There was an interesting conversation which Margaret Brennan brought up specifically around women, women in the workforce and mothers and how they've been impacted this pandemic. Now, if you ever pick up a newspaper or a magazine, you've probably been seeing this over and over. There was just a huge piece in the New York Times talking about that it's not burnout. It's almost feels like a systemic betrayal of systems and safety nets failing women and mothers. During COVID. During COVID, exactly. There was another huge series of articles recently in The Cut, which is from New York Magazine. There's these deep profiles of how women are losing a lot, a lot more than men during this pandemic. And Margaret Brennan brought this up with the Treasury Secretary, who is also a woman, but has a lot of say as to what happens in our economy right now. 
Take a listen to this moment. Specifically, the unemployment rate for men and women um, is relatively similar, but uh, the president's economic advisor, Jared Bernstein, said this past week, the number of women who've left the workforce is of great concern and unusual in a recession. What's driving that and how do you get women back into the workforce? Well, you know, women really are, many face just an impossible situation in which they have children they have to take care of who aren't in school and um, would be facing increasing demands on the job. And many, over two million, have dropped out of the labor force because um, it's so hard to manage that con that conflict. And the, the package, the American Rescue Package that President Biden has proposed um, really addresses the problems that women face. It places huge emphasis on getting our schools open safely, getting children um, back into school, um, providing paid family and medical leave during uh, this crisis so that women um, don't have to leave their jobs when they're faced with health issues or family issues that they have to address. There's emphasis on providing more child care and, um, and payments, tax credits uh, expanded for children to help families address these needs. And I think this is really necessary um, to get women back to work. They've faced uh, a disproportionate burden because of this crisis, especially low-wage women and women of color. So like I said, this is not a new story. But other than Margaret Brennan raising this, sometimes with Fed Reserve chairs, Dana Bash just last week bringing this up, and sometimes every once in a while, Jake Tapper being really annoyed that his kids are still at home, we don't see this conversation around childcare, around women in the workforce, or women not in the workforce, really, and the long-term impacts of this. Like, Get it together, men. Like, I don't... It should be a main topic of conversation. It should be way more prevalent yeah. in these Sunday shows. Like, we are almost a year into this, people. And... Well, we are. Today, I think, is a year since the first American died of COVID-19. Right. I'm, I guess in, like, I think of the shutdown starting in March. Right, right. But I'm just... I don't know why, but I'm still so surprised that these men don't think this is a huge story that warrants time in their shows. But kudos to Margaret Brennan for seeing it, knowing it, and prioritizing it. And talking about it with the right people. With the right person, exactly. Yeah. Not missing that opportunity. Totally. Brendan, what's your moment in journalism? So journalism, I have to call out Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd, this week, I think did a terrible disservice to the discussion of this economic relief package. He did not bring data or information into his conversations on this topic, specifically his conversation with Republican Senator Bill Cassidy from the state of Louisiana. He's also a physician. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to play for you the extent of Chuck Todd's questions on the topic of the economic relief bill. Now, their conversation also touched a bit on impeachment. But this is the entirety of the discussion of this bill, which is of great national importance. 
My concern here isn't with the fact that this conversation wasn't a very long one. It's with the lack of substance and the lack of detail and facts and data that Chuck Todd brings to the conversation. Let me move to COVID relief. You guys came in there with 10 Republicans. Um, the bare number you need in order to avoid the, you know, avoid a filibuster. If you're Joe Biden and you come in here, should, why should he meet you guys more than halfway? Is it incumbent on you to meet the Democrats more than halfway? In fairness, considering the Democrats control the Senate and they won the election. Let me ask you this. Do you think we went too small in 09 or too big in 09 with the, uh, with the, with the stimulus? Your um, proposal, by the way, you were one of the senators that has been fighting hard to get aid to state and local governments. One of the few Republicans that have joined some Democrats. This counterproposal of yours did not include state aid. And, and you have said, look, there, it is hard for you to get. I, my guess is you couldn't get 10 Republicans to join you if you did. If that is the issue, how how do you come to a bill where you know you have the Democrats on the side of state and local aid here? You got to look at facts. Now, the reason I said it would be difficult is that some states have done better in 2020 than they did in 2019. California has had record tax revenue. Now, my state's been hurt. Let's just say it. Mm -hmm. But New York, for all of their complaining, Governor Cuomo's complaining, has only had a 1.5 percent decrease in revenue. New Jersey, 0.5 percent. And nationwide, I think it's like 0.1 percent revenue decline nationwide. Now, it's hard to build political consensus when there's only 0.1 percent revenue decline. If if good policy is good politics, then maybe bad policy is bad politics. And if we're going to throw three hundred and fifty billion dollars at states when New York has had record increased revenue, some folks are going to scratch their head and says that's not justified. Let's think of a different way to do it. Uh, Are you still willing to work with the Biden White House if if this deal ends up being on a party line vote? Will this make it harder for you to work with them or you know what? You'll you'll be there for the next one. So at one point there, I kind of missed it <laughs> the first time I went through this, or I guess the second time I went through this, but now the third time, Bill Cassidy says directly to Chuck Todd at one point in his answer, you've got to look at facts. Even Bill Cassidy is saying, can we have some facts here in this conversation? And Cassidy brings his own facts that, that he thinks buttress his claim, but Chuck Todd has nothing fact-related or related really to the data behind the bill that he's bringing to the conversation at all. And he, he almost seems to be like nodding, nodding along with Bill Cassidy's facts, reinforcing his arguments. It, it was just unbelievable to me. Now, we know that although Bill Cassidy has these facts, there are alternative facts that suggest that maybe state and local aid is an important thing. But Chuck Todd doesn't bring that information to the conversation. And I just, I, I couldn't believe it. Also missing from this conversation is the American people, right? We, we don't right. hear about the American people. Chuck Todd doesn't talk about the American They're people. They're just abstract. Right. At the end of this, and I don't play how Chuck Todd kind of closes out the conversation because it's not a question, but Bill Cassidy laments, it seems that it takes two to tango and there's no one who wants to tango with them, right? No one wants to tango with the Republicans. Oh the Democrats want to dance on their own or whatever it is. And Chuck Todd says something like, well, that seems to be a problem that has you know, plagued this city for a long time. How about the problem being help for the American people? Is that ever the problem 
being discussed here in this conversation? I don't think it is. So the lack of facts, the lack of focus on the American people is just just terrible in this in this discussion. And this is the the premier conversation that happens about this on Meet the Press this week. Now, in contrast, I want to play for you just a bit because it went on for quite long of the conversation with Pat Toomey, another Republican for, for another Republican senator from the state of Pennsylvania on State of the Union. Listen to how Jake Tapper engages in this conversation. Senator, uh, good to have you. As always, you just heard Secretary Yellen make her case for why almost $2 trillion in coronavirus relief is necessary. You disagree. W- why is she wrong? The problem with this is, Jake, 42 days ago, we passed the fifth huge bill, another trillion dollars, bringing the total to over $4 trillion. Much of that money, huge amount of that money, is not even out the door yet. Much of it was way too... Uh, broad and not sufficiently targeted as it was. All of these bills were passed with big bipartisan votes. The biggest of them, the CARES Act from March, over $2 trillion, not a single no vote in the entire Senate. So here we are. The economy has come roaring back. The unemployment rate is less than half what it was. Disposable income is at record highs. Savings rates are at record highs. And where we have problems is very concentrated, Jake. It's not an economy in collapse the way it was in March. So let me ask you, I mean, you talk about how the economy has improved and the economy is improved, but the U.S. is still down almost 10 million jobs since the pandemic began a year ago. Job growth is crawling. Right. We just got the, uh, the jobs report, only 49,000 jobs added in January. I mean, that's really bad with 400,000 Americans taking themselves out of even looking for jobs. 24 million Americans don't have enough to eat. The CBO says it's going to take until 2024 to fully recover without sizable relief. How do you explain uh, your opposition given those facts about millions of struggling Americans? So all of those things, I mean, we've allocated money for these purposes. Wow, did you hear that, Naomi? Actual data, actual facts, focus on the American people. The thing about the comparison between these two conversations with Republican senators is who are you having the conversation for and what do you want them to know when the conversation is over, right? Or what do you want your guests to know when the conversation is over? And in the Chuck Todd case, it's a conversation for Washington insiders to get a sense as to how this is going to play out the next few days or who's mad at who. And that is it. It's not so that the average American can be like, am I getting any relief anytime soon? That's not the goal. In the conversation with Jake Tapper, maybe it's the Washington insider. Maybe it's the average American. I think it could be either. But what is clear is that at the end of the conversation, Jake Tapper wants to leave Pat Toomey with the fact that American people are suffering and that unless they're willing to do something, that suffering is going to continue for a very long time. It is not nearly as much of a kind of a sports who's up, who's down, who has the strategy to win type of conversation. Who's tangoing alone? Oh, God. Yeah, it was, I have a lot of thoughts about men expecting people to dance with them, but that's another <laughs> conversation for another day. Yeah, it was just such a stark contrast to see these two totally different directions for the conversation. One being very inside Washington, inside baseball. Not a lot of tough pushback on the arguments, right? I mean, that's what we want from these Sunday shows. 
we want to see the arguments of these politicians pushed back on. We want to see the debate, right? And there's no debate in that interview that Chuck Todd conducted. And you don't really end up learning a lot more than... I don't know what you learn. What do you learn? Well, and that's the thing is like sometimes when these shows are talking about big pieces of legislative priorities or big, just huge, huge bills, if someone doesn't understand that industry or that sector of the economy or whatever, like you need to have some component of teaching or your conversation needs to be in such layman terms that people can keep up with your conversation, right? And it doesn't seem to me as if that has been, I don't know, it just seems to be totally missing. So I was extremely disappointed in that, but I was, you know, as disappointed as I was in what happened on Meet the Press, I was super excited to see all the points that I wished Chuck Todd had deployed used by Jake Tapper, which is why we cover more than one show, right? Exactly. Well, speaking of looking at more than one show, that takes us to show ratings. You just spoke about Meet the Press and State of the Union. How would you rate both of those shows? State of the Union right at the top. Ooh. Outstanding job on State of the Union. I found almost every part of it very insightful, very interesting, very well done. I don't know. This week, I'm feeling generous. Let's give it a 10. Wow. You get a 10. That's crazy. Yep. I will never give a 10, but good for you and your 10s. Yep. What about Meet the Press? What would you give it? I think it's got to be a three or a four. It was not a good episode. Not a good episode. Okay. I'll give it a four. Sounds good. Mostly just because he asked what needed to be asked of Fauci, even though Fauci didn't give him a good answer. Fair point. You've been waiting for that question since forever. What about Fox News Sunday? Fox News Sunday was also pretty good, even though I thought it had an atrocious intro about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, God. So I think I I have to give it a seven, despite all that. Naomi, how was Face the Nation this week? Face the Nation was pretty good. There was a whole interview with Lindsey Graham, which I thought a lot about whether or not I should discuss it. Ultimately, I said no. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's a valid conversation to be had about why are you inviting Lindsey Graham on the show? Seriously. And I thought Margaret Brennan did an okay job examining Lindsey Graham's loyalty to President Trump and his flip-floppiness about what the appropriate response after the January 6th attack should be. I ultimately decided to go with the conversation that George had with Senator Wooker because I thought George did a better job, but I think Margaret Brennan tried, but I don't think he did as good of a job with Lindsey Graham. So there was that conversation. There was also the conversation with Janet Yellen with who... There were some other kind of extra segments. CBS always does like extra things around uh, the Super Bowl. So Oh, I know. Yeah. It, it's kind of like a theme for... They love their traditions. Yeah. My goodness. Traditions are nice, but not necessary in my world. So that's Face the Nation. And then for... Wait, so what was the number then? Oh, yeah. I guess I never said. <laughs> um, I think I would give it a seven. Now, let's be real. It's a six. It's a six. Whoa. It was like... 
the more I think about the Lindsey Graham interview, the more I'm like, blah. And then the parts that didn't work for me really didn't work for me. But the parts that were great were phenomenal. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's hard. It's hard. This is how we struggle every weekend. And then the this last week. show is this week. And I think I'm going to give it an eight. George really, really stood out with some very strong interviews. Very exciting stuff to have our first 10 in our in our rating system. You're so happy for State of the Union. Yeah, it's great. I'm happy for our system. <laughs> and for our shows. All right, Naomi, well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge this week. What, uh, what types of dialogue? What's it worth talking about this week or thinking about in our conversations? I think a conversation about accountability might be very fruitful. And very timely. Yes. So the impeachment is starting this week. And whether you agree or not that the impeachment should be happening, I would be curious as to how people feel about the need for accountability, what the learning lessons are, how do you ask for it? How do you offer it? Just And, and not even just with the January 6th attack, but those conversations in your day-to-day life with your family, with your friends, with your colleagues, it could be something that makes people very defensive. It could be something that brings a lot of healing. I think it's important to have room in your relationships to be able to talk to each other, to be able to learn, to be able to figure out what the gaps are instead of assuming that someone's just like wronged you or has like let you down in some way. Or if they have, to be able to, to approach them with that and identify, right, yeah. yeah, course of action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good example. It's, it can be tough to have those conversations, <laughs> but it's very important. You can always reach us. You can at, hold us accountable. Yes. You can send us a message at podcast at polylog.com via email. You can follow me at bstidal on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at sodanaomi underscore. And you can always follow the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. We will talk with you next week. Goodbye. Bye.